the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Ring of Truth with Pastor Dan Sexton. John is a very selective and very deliberate in what he did include in his gospel account. And the reason he's so selective and so deliberate is because John is writing to prove to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's overriding goal here throughout this gospel, to make the case for the identity of Jesus. Have you ever noticed how each gospel contains unique information that's exclusive from the others? Or perhaps you've even noticed that three Gospels might share the same information, while the fourth gives no mention whatsoever. In today's message, Pastor Dan will help you to discover the intent of John's particular writing style, as well as his deliberate choices. In his study, you'll learn how John's Gospel is focused on making a case for the divinity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, here's Pastor Dan in the book of John, chapter 3, for today's edition of Ring of Truth. Take John 3.16, for example, probably the best-known verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You can write a whole book on the theology in that one verse. But at the same time, a child can hear that verse in the children's ministry, in Sunday school, and understand it and put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved and born again because of the simplicity of it. Uh, so it's just an amazing, amazing book. So chapter 20, verse 30 and verse 31 that we're looking at today. The reason we're looking at these verses today is because in these two verses, John clearly states the purpose of the book, the reason he wrote this book, wrote this gospel. And so these verses give us just a very good foundation and understanding of why John wrote this gospel. Again, look at verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John When he wrote this gospel, he didn't just write a biography on the life of Jesus Christ. That's not his intention here. That's not his purpose. It's not just a biographical sketch of Jesus. And so because of that, John's gospel is very different from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. And they're called the synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis of the life of Jesus. John is not giving us a synopsis of the life of Jesus Christ. He writes with a very specific purpose. Uh, And he tells us that purpose in verse 31. And so because of that, much of what John includes in his gospel, you, you don't find in the other three gospels. And much of what's in the other three gospels, you don't find in John's gospel. There's a lot of difference here between John and the other three gospels. That's why John's gospel is quite often kind of separated out. It's not included with the synoptic gospels because it's not a synopsis of his life. The content is different from the other three gospels. I'll give you a few examples. John's gospel does not include the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ is not recorded. So there's no Christmas story. There's no little town of Bethlehem in John's gospel. Uh, John's gospel does not include Jesus's baptism. John's gospel does not include the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. There are no parables in John's gospel. The Last Supper is not detailed for us in John's gospel. Uh, Jesus's agony in Gethsemane is praying, you know, sweating drops of blood. And Father, uh, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's not recorded for us in John's gospel. Jesus's ascension to heaven is not recorded in John's gospel. That's just a few examples. But you can see that, that John leaves out some pretty significant events in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that are included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John, again, he's writing for a specific purpose. He's got a goal in mind. Uh, John also, though, includes some events that we don't find in the other three Gospels. For example, it's in John's Gospel where Jesus says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty important. You know, Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. But that's only found in John's Gospel. It's not in the other three Gospels. Uh, John's gospel also includes the most extensive teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the gospels. The person and work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus explains the ministry of the Holy Spirit in what's called the upper room discourse that we'll see in John's gospel. And we don't find that in the other three gospels. Uh, Two thirds of John's gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus's life. Again, beginning with chapter 12. So about chapter 20 covers just the last week of Jesus's life. So John puts the spotlight on the redemptive work of Christ more than the other gospels do. So John is a very selective and very deliberate and what he did include in his gospel account. And the reason he's so selective and so deliberate is because John is writing to prove to us that Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's overriding goal here throughout this gospel to make the case for the identity of Jesus and to persuade us and convince us that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the son of God, so much so that we put our faith and trust in him and have life in his name. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus is the Christ? Well, the word Christ is a title. It's a title. It's the New Testament word 
for Messiah. It's a title. It's the New Testament word for Messiah. Christ is the most common title for Jesus in the New Testament. It's used 569 times in the New Testament. It's used so often that many people think that Christ is Jesus' last name, right? That Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name, his middle name is Holy, right? (laughs) It's not his last name. It's his title. It means Messiah. So it's saying that, you know, Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah And the word Messiah means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, remember I told you that John is writing primarily to Jews who are going to understand this. In the Old Testament, we have the Messiah spoken of. The the Messiah is this savior, this deliverer who's described throughout the Old Testament, beginning back in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. And this promise that was made to Eve of the seed that would come from the woman. This Messiah that would come and is promised throughout the whole Old Testament. He's going to come as a savior, as a deliverer to deliver God's people. And he'll establish his kingdom on the earth and rule over the whole earth on the throne of David. And you see this storyline through the whole Old Testament. There's over 500 references to the Messiah. In the Old Testament. And John tells us here in verse 31 that he writes this gospel to persuade the reader that Jesus is that promised Messiah, that promised Christ that's described in the Old Testament. That's his goal in writing this, is to show us that he's the Messiah that's spoken of in the Old Testament and to show us that Jesus is the Son of of God. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus is the Son of God? Forty-seven times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of God. Ten times in the Gospel of John. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? It means simply, this is what the, the title, Son of God, means. It means simply that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's what it means. The Son of God. That means he is God. The idea being turtles give birth to turtles, right? Dogs have dogs. Humans have humans. If God has a son, that son's God. So he's the son of God. It means when he uses that title, Jesus is declaring his deity. When he is referred to as the son of God, it's referring to his deity, that he's God. We'll return to today's edition of Ring of Truth with Pastor Dan Sexton in a moment. But first, Pastor Dan would like to extend a special invitation to our listeners. If you've enjoyed the messages on Ring of Truth, I'd like to personally invite you to join us this Sunday at Calvary Chapel. We're located in Columbia, Maryland, just five minutes from routes 29, 95, and 100. I'd love for you to come be part of our time of worship and Bible study this weekend at 9 or 11 a.m., I always enjoy meeting listeners of Ring of Truth, so please be sure to introduce yourself to me after church. To find out more information and to get directions, visit our website at calvaryec.com. Thanks, Pastor Dan. That website again is calvaryec.com. We look forward to seeing you. Now, back to today's message. When Jesus speaks of God being his Father, he's implying deity. When he says that, 
And I'll show you what I mean. Uh, Turn over to John chapter 5. Turn over to John chapter 5. And what I've done today is I've tried to, I've tried to go easy on you with this introduction. All of our, all of our cross-references today are in the Gospel of John. So we're just going to one book today for this introduction. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Again, it's a Jewish feast. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told which feast of the Jews this was. But he goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts, as was the custom. And we're told in verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. If you go with us to Israel next summer, we'll go to the pool of Bethesda. You'll see it. And in these five porches lay a great multitude of sick people blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And so if you can picture this in your mind, there's a pool there near the temple called the Pool of Bethesda. It's got five porches around the pool And the porches are filled with a great multitude of people, sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, different diseases, different ailments. And they're waiting for the moving of the water. And there was this tradition that an angel would come down, stir the water, and then whoever stepped into the water first would be healed of whatever disease they had. Now, we don't know where this tradition comes from. Uh, We don't know if maybe at some point in the past somebody actually miraculously was healed at that pool. That's possible. We don't know if this is just some kind of folklore thing that people believed in. uh, And there's really nothing real about it. We don't know. But the fact is, there's a whole bunch of people there that are hoping to get healed. And they're, they're willing to try it because they're so desperate to be healed of their disease or their paralysis or whatever the case may be. And we're told in verse 5 about a certain man who was there on one of these porches. And this certain man was there, and he had an infirmity for 38 years. That's a long time to be sick. And when Jesus saw him lying there, so he's paralyzed, and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now get the picture here. Huge crowds of people crowded on these porches. They're sick lame, paralyzed people all over these porches. And Jesus walks up to this one man and says, do you want to be made well? Jesus doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't say, hi, I'm Jesus. Maybe you've heard of me. I can help you out. You know, you want to be made well. No, he doesn't introduce himself. He just walks up. The stranger walks up to him and says, do you want to be made well? That's a yes or no question. Do you want to be made well? Yes, I do. Or no, I don't. I'm happy in the condition that I'm in. But look at the sick man's answer. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. What does he do? He makes excuses for his condition. Jesus asked him a simple question. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? 
And he starts to tell and give excuses of all the reasons why he can't be made well. And notice, too, he blames other people. I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. And there's other people that step down before me that are faster than me. It's everybody else's fault that he's in the condition that he's in. And have you noticed that we do that sometimes? And we can make excuses for the condition that we're in or for the way that we act. And we blame other people. I wouldn't do this if you wouldn't have said that to me. I wouldn't have gotten angry. And that's the reason I shot off at you because you, you know, and we start blaming other people. That's what, that's what he does. Now, I love what Jesus does here in verse 8. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, let me put that in today's language. Jesus said to him, get up. Isn't that great? Here, here, do you want to be made well? Well, let me tell you all the reasons why I can't be made well. Let me tell you what this person's doing, what that person's doing. And Jesus just ignores all of his excuses and just says, get up, get up. Isn't that great? I love that. Jesus doesn't, you know, poor baby him. He doesn't, oh, I understand. It must be so hard with all these people. That guy's faster than I get. It's terrible. No, just get up. Just get up. I love it. No excuses. Just get up. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now, why does Jesus tell him to take up his bed? Why doesn't he just say, get up and walk? He says, take up his bed because that guy ain't coming back to that place. You're, you're getting up, you're leaving, and you're not coming back here. So you don't need to leave your bed here because you're not coming back. And isn't that great? How the Lord does that, how sometimes he'll, he'll come in, he'll step in. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? And he says, just get up. And you don't, you don't need to come back to this, this place of lameness in your life. You don't need to come back to this place of paralysis in your life because I'm healing you today. So you're not coming back. So take your bed with you because you ain't coming back here. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and he started walking. It's a miracle. And we're told here in verse 9, in verse 9, a little important detail, that day was the Sabbath day. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. (laughs) Now, the Sabbath day was supposed to be a day of rest. That's all that God said. Work six days, rest the seventh day. Have a Sabbath. God didn't put any kind of parameters on what that, what that means. Just rest. He's given us a day off, which was a new thing in the world. Nobody had a day off up till God saying, take a day off. It's meant, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus said. It's meant to be a blessing to man. They just have a day of rest. But what the Jews did is they created all these rules and regulations for the Sabbath day and what constitutes work and what doesn't constitute work. And they literally created volumes defining work for the Sabbath day. One of the things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath day was carry a load because they const- that, that in the, they defined as work. And so when they see this man walking on the Sabbath day and carrying his bed and here when it says the Jews in verse 10, and it's the capital Jews there, it's referring to the religious leaders. It's not referring to all Jews. It's talking about the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. They see this man carrying his bed, and they say, hey, it's the Sabbath day. Not allowed to carry your bed on the Sabbath day. And the man answered, verse 11, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now notice here in verse 11, This guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. 
Jesus never said, oh, and by the way, my name is Jesus. So Jesus comes up, the stranger comes up, heals him, and then leaves. And this guy doesn't even know who healed him. That's grace. That's grace. Grace is undeserved favor, undeserved kindness from God. This guy's not praying. This guy's not seeking the Lord. He's not at the temple. He's across the street over at this pool. Jesus comes up and heals him. Jesus leaves. He doesn't even know Jesus' name. It's all grace. So verse 12, then they, the religious leaders, asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And I suspect they had a pretty good idea of who it was because there's only one guy going around healing people at this point. But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So he slips away in the crowd before the guy can say, what's your name? Then afterward, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple. And I like that. This man is healed at the pool of Bethesda. And what's the first thing he does? He goes right across the street to the temple to worship God. And you just see where his heart is. He doesn't go home, doesn't find all of his friends, doesn't go kiss his mama and say, look, I'm healed after 38 years. And I'm going to go worship the Lord, seeking first the kingdom of God. So afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. So he's there in the temple courts. Jesus walks up to him and says, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So apparently, this man's paralysis was the result of some sin in his life. You know, so they had some kind of physical affliction that was brought on by sin. So Jesus says, don't sin anymore. And the man departed. I love this verse 15. He departed. He goes back and he finds those religious leaders that were interrogating him and said, hey, it was Jesus that made me well. The guy's name was Jesus. You were asking her earlier who it was. I found out who it was. It was, it was Jesus. Ever heard of him? Yeah, we've heard of him. <laughs> we know who he is. And for this reason, verse 16, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He broke their man-made rules. He didn't break God's rule, but he, he broke their man-made rules. Now watch verse 17. And Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. He asked me how I know, and I say, bring truth. The book of 1 John invites followers of Jesus into a consistently growing relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Christian walk isn't meant to stagnate, no matter how long you've been pursuing your relationship. There's always more to discover about your Almighty Creator and more ways in which He can refine your heart. As you've done already today by joining Pastor Dan for Ring of Truth, we encourage you to continue spending time in the Word regularly. We also urge you to make conversation with God a regular part of your routine as well. Praying and listening to what your Heavenly Father wants to say to you. And know that here at Ring of Truth, we're also praying for you. We're so glad you joined us today, and we'd like to invite you to visit us here at Calvary Chapel. If you live in the Baltimore, Washington area, come worship with us this Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. 
Calvary Chapel is located in Columbia, Maryland, only minutes from Route 95, Route 29, or Route 100. For more information on what you can expect when you visit, go to calvaryec.com. Or give us a call. We can be reached at 410-491-4592. That's 410-491-4592. That's all for today. Join us next time for more right here on Ring of Truth. Good night.